0: Hey, it's Brian, back again with another Burr Months bonus episode for those of us getting an early start on the Christmas season. We're almost entering the last week in September, and that means that the first month of the Burr Months is almost over. Almost. I hope you've been making the best of it so far, as we're about a quarter of the way through the most wonderful time of the year. Pretty soon we'll be putting up the Halloween decorations, and after that it's pretty much the official Christmas season, according to some. Well, anyway, I'm here to bring you the next installment of our YA novel, Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains, or A Christmas Success Against Odds. But before we get to that, just a couple of quick announcements. First of all, I would love to send you an early Christmas card along with an official Christmas past sticker. All you have to do is review Christmas past on Apple Podcasts and then get in touch with me with your mailing address. You see, those reviews really do help the show a lot because they make it more discoverable. When people type the word Christmas into that little search box, it'll make Christmas Past appear higher on the list, meaning people are more likely to click on it and check it out. So leaving a review is, in a very real way, like spreading Christmas cheer. And it gives me a perfect excuse to reach out and connect and write a Christmas card any time of year. So again, leave a review and then get in touch with me with your mailing address. You can always drop a line at christmaspasspodcast at gmail.com or ping me on any of the social media. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Now secondly, yes it is still September, but that does not mean it's too early to send a Christmas memory to appear in an episode later on in the season. This season, perhaps more than any other in the past, I really want to share your Christmas memories with the rest of the Christmas Past family, even if you've already shared one before. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. It can be a simple anecdote. It can be your favorite things about the season or what Christmas was like when you were growing up or what it's like in the place you live now. Really, anything you want to talk about as long as you keep it reasonably short and clean and family-friendly. Just record a voice memo in your phone and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, time to dive back into that 1918 YA novel Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains or A Christmas Success Against Odds. This is the sixth installment, and you really should listen from the beginning so you can follow along. We're about a third or more of the way through the story, and I'll continue to bring a new episode every few days or so until we get all the way through, and then we're on to something else. I'm not sure what that'll be yet, but I guarantee it'll be equally festive. I'll be back at the end to wrap up and say goodbye, but for now, please enjoy Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains or A Christmas Success Against Odds. Chapter 10. Mr. Stanlock Amused I understand now how a mathematician could write Alice in Wonderland, Helen Nash remarked to Marion after Mr. Stanlock had withdrawn to the dining room for his belated meal. How is that? The hostess inquired, looking curiously at her friend. "'Why, your father, I suppose, has been thinking in terms of tons of coal all day.' "'Carloads,' Marion corrected with a toss of levity. "'Well, make it carloads,' Helen assented. That's better to my purpose, more like a multiplication table instead of addition. But it must be about as dry as mathematics.' Oh, I get you, Marion exclaimed delightedly. You mean that it is quite as remarkable for a coal operator with carloads of coal and soot weighing down his imagination all day to come home in the evening and spin off a lot of nonsense like a comedian as it is for a mathematician to have written Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Precisely, answered Helen. Well, I don't know, but you're right. Anyway, I wouldn't detract from such a nice compliment paid to the dearest daddy on earth. Still, after leaving the atmosphere of his carloads of coal, he had experienced the diversion of being held up. By two masked men with guns on a lonely highway, supplemented Helen. Yes. And later found that his driver had turned traitor and planned to deliver him into the hands of the enemy. Yes. Yes. I don't see any diversion or inspiration in that sort of experience. Many a man would have come home in a very depressed state of mind after such an adventure. And yet, he came home, found everybody scared to death, and before he even began his story had us all laughing just as Alice would at some of the contortions behind the looking glass. And he kept us smiling even when he told us of the masked would-be kidnappers standing in the middle of the road and pointing pistols at the driver of his automobile. Kidnappers, repeated Marion in puzzled surprise. Why do you say kidnappers? The two girls were alone in the library when this conversation took place. All of the other guests, feeling that the members of the family would prefer to be left alone following the startling occurrences of the evening, had withdrawn to their rooms. Helen was about to bid her friend good night when her remark regarding Mr. Stanlock's happy personal faculties opened the discussion as here recorded. She hesitated for a few moments before answering the last inquiry, then she said, Don't you think that those men intended to kidnap your father? What other explanation can there be for their actions? I hadn't tried to figure out their motive, Marion replied thoughtfully. Father called it a hold-up, and I took him at his word. But he had no money with him, did he? No, I think not. He seldom carries much money. And it is hardly reasonable to assume that this plot between the chauffeur and the two highwaymen was for the purpose of murder. They would have gone about it some other way. This one leaves too many traces behind. Yes, Marion admitted. Well, the only reasonable conclusion we can reach with the robbery and the murder motives out of the way is that the plotters wished to take your father prisoner and hold him someplace until they got what they wanted. But what did they want? asked the bewildered Marion. That's for your father to suspect and the police to find out, said Helen shrewdly. Personally, I haven't a doubt that the strike has everything to do with it. What makes you think so? The threatening letter that you received at the Institute? Show that to your father tonight and suggest that he turn it over to the police. I will, Marion promised. And in this new excitement, I forgot all about it. I didn't even show it to Mother. Just as soon as Papa finishes his dinner, I'm going to show the letter to him. I'll go upstairs and get it now. "'You wait here and be present when we talk it over, Helen. "'You're so good at offering suggestions that maybe with you present "'we can all work out some kind of solution of what's been going on.'" Marion hastened up to her room and returned presently with both the anonymous letters that she received at Westmoreland. A few minutes later, her father and mother both entered the library with the evident purpose in mind of holding a lengthy conference on the problems growing out of Mr. Stanlock's business troubles. Papa. Papa. Do you think those men tried to kidnap you? Marion inquired by way of introducing the subject. Mr. Stanlock laughed heartily. Kidnap me, he explained. Well, that's a good one. I thought they only kidnapped kids. Father, the girl pleaded, do be serious with me. I've got something very important to show you, something I forgot all about until Helen reminded me. Helen thinks those men tried to kidnap you, and she's a pretty wise girl, as I've had occasion to find out. If Helen said that, she surely must be a wise girl or else she has made a pretty accurate guess," was the mine owner's reply. Then they did want to kidnap you. Absolutely no doubt of it. They've got some kind of retreat in the mountains and plan to carry me off there and keep me prisoner. What for? Why, to force me to yield to some of their demands which are utterly impossible and unreasonable. First, they demand an increase of wages that would force us into a receivership sooner or later, and again they demand the option of a cooperative plan which eventually would make them owners of the mines, if there were any possibility of it working. And there isn't. It's a most ridiculous holdup, the responsibility of which rests with a few fanatical leaders of doubtful integrity. What do you think of these letters? Marion asked, handing the two anonymous missives to her father. I received them by mail at the Institute last night, but neglected to read them until we were on the train this morning. As Mr. Stanlock read them, his brow contracted sternly. He could treat lightly any hostile attack on himself, but when danger threatened members of his family or their intimate friends, all signs of levity disappeared from his manner, and he was ready at once to meet with all his energy the source of the danger, whether it be human or an element of inanimate nature. This, he said, as he finished reading and held up the letter signed with a skull and crossbones, undoubtedly comes from the source where the plot to kidnap me originated. They are pretty well organized and determined to go the limit. Of course, you girls must give up your plans to work among the strikers' families. It would be foolhardy and probably would result in somebody's getting hurt. How about the other letter? Marion asked. I don't know, was the reply. It doesn't seem to amount to much. I hardly think it has to be taken as a threat. Have you no idea who sent it? Some of the girls think that it was sent by some of the Boy Scouts at Spring Lake. You see, they came up in full force to Hiawatha on the night when we held our Grand Council fire. It was a complete surprise to us, exceedingly well done, and about as clever as you could expect from the cleverest boys. Before they left, several of them boasted openly that they were planning another surprise for some of us, and they dared us to find out in advance what it was. No doubt that is what this note means, Mr. Stanlock declared so positively and such a gleam of interest in his eyes that Marion could not help wondering just a little. "'What makes you so certain about it?' she inquired. "'I don't see any real proof in those words as to what they mean or who wrote them.' "'No, no, of course not,' agreed Mr. Stanlock, with seemingly uncalled-for glibness. "'But then, you see, it is more reasonable to suspect that this note came from the boys than from the strikers. If it is between the two, the boys and the strikers, I say forget the strikers and be sure that the boy sent the note.' "'I wish that the boys would spring their surprise tonight and settle the question of that note,' said Marian. "'Why?' inquired her father, with a faint light of a smile in his eyes. "'Because I don't like the uncertainty of the thing. "'Uncertainty always bothers me, and this is a more than ordinary case.' "'But how could the boys spring their surprise without coming to Holly Hill?' her father asked. "'That's just it,' she returned with a quick glance of suspicion toward her father and her mother. Do you know, I found myself wondering several times if Clifford wouldn't bring some of those boys down here sometime during the holidays. Mr. Stanlock laughed, but he would have given a good deal to be able to recall the noise he made. It was really a noise, as he must have admitted to himself, and so hollow as to indicate something decidedly unlike spontaneous amusement. Marion found herself in a brown study several times over those circumstances and her father's manner before she went to sleep. That night. Chapter 11 A Man of Big Heart and Queer Notions Christmas was a big event at Hollyhill. Hollyhill was well named. Perhaps some old patriarch a century or two back conceived the inspiration of the name while playing Santa Claus with the little tots of the household and pretending to have slid down the chimney without getting a speck of soot on his bulging vestments. Perhaps he imagined, while Mother woke the children and had them peek through a crack in the door at the white-whiskered visitor stuffing their stockings full of presents, that he had tethered his prancing team of reindeer to a holly tree outside. Perhaps there seemed to have been material for such imagination, for tradition said that the hill on which the first houses of the first settlement were built had at one time been richly adored with a species of American ilex. And even now, there remained here and there carefully preserved remnants of that reported original wealth of the wilderness. Whether or not this conjectural history of the settlement had anything to do with the cheerful midwinter holiday developments of the community need not be argued at length. An argument would render the truth flat and insipid if it were to prove to be in accord with poetic tradition. So, what's the use? In midwinter, everyone just knew that Hollyhill, as a child, had been nursed in the snow-trimmed evergreen lap of Christmas. Not that this municipality had a corner on midwinter holiday generosity to the exclusion of all other communities. The chief outstanding fact in this relation was that the inhabitants, or those so fortunate as to be in a position to give and receive abundantly, believed Holly Hill to be the most generous Christmas town on earth, and there was nobody sufficiently interested to make a denial and follow it up with proof. Much of the credit for this condition was due to the leading man of the place, Richard P. Stanlock, president and controlling power of the Holly Hill Coal Mining Company, which owned a string of mines in the Mountain District near the divisional lines of two states. Besides being the leading citizen, Mr. Stanlock was the biggest man in town because of the position to which he had risen, his ability to hold it, and the influence that went with it. What he said usually went, but his hand was not always evident. He liked to see things done, doubtless enjoyed the realization that his was the great moving power that produced results, but didn't give a fig to have anybody else know it. To his intimate friends, who were few, and to the many with whom he would pass the time of day, he was as common in word and manner as the average householder with nothing more pretentious in life than the earning of his daily bread. But in spite of all this simplicity and personal retirement, Mr. Stanlock was a good deal of a mystery to many citizens who knew really little about him. Or perhaps he was a mystery to those fellow townsfolk because of his modest qualities. Knowing little about him, they imagined more. Leading citizens who knew his good qualities were ever ready with a word of praise for him. But the trouble was, the needed tangible evidence of his broad philanthropy was utterly lacking. Seldom was there a visible connecting link between him and a good deed. And so the praise of his work in pulpit, press, and other public and semi-public places fell as platitudes before a considerable number of skeptics whose favorite reply to this sort of thing was something like, bunk. But Marion knew that it wasn't bunk. She was one of the few confidants that gained an intimate understanding of the wealthy mine owner's character. She knew that he was the secret financial backer of an organization of settlement workers which kept close watch on the needs of the miners and their families, many of whom were so woefully ignorant that about the only way to handle them was by appealing to their appetites, their sympathies, and their prejudices. She knew, too, that he had strong connections constantly at work fostering and promoting the best of activities for advancement of the civic welfare, that Christmas was one of his secret hobbies, and that it was practically impossible for this city of 40,000 inhabitants to neglect this opportunity for a revival of good fellowship and good cheer, so long as her father had his hand on the electric key of public generosity. Christmas was a blaze of glory every year in Hollyhill. Public halls, churches and theaters were the scenes of the liveliest activities for several days and nights before and after this biggest event of the winter season. Nor was the celebration confined to the more prosperous sections of town, but extended into the heart of the mining settlement where Christmas tinsel and lights were lavished without consideration of cost, and nobody was allowed to pass the season without being impressively reminded as to just what turkey roast and cranberry sauce tasted like. So skillfully were these programs put into effect that seldom was a hint dropped from any source that Richard Perry Stanlock was entitled to the slightest credit for these magnificent doings. He spent Christmas at home in a quiet, unassuming way amid the family decorations of holly and mistletoe and a vast litter of presents, oranges, apples, nuts, and candy. Marion knew that her father's greatest vanity was his secret pride in his ability to put over the biggest generosity of the year without its being traceable to him. One day, a girl acquaintance of her asked her if she knew that her father spent $25,000 every year at Christmas. Marion laughed. laughed. Later, she laughingly reported the query to Mr. Stanlock. Next day, this girl friend's uncle, one of the philanthropist's agents, was called in on the carpet and given a lecture on the wisdom of guarding his remarks such as he had never before dreamed of receiving. "'Papa,' the millionaire's older daughter said to him one day, "'don't you think it is foolish to keep secret all these generous things that you are doing?' "'Why do you think it is foolish, my dear?' he replied with an expression of shrewd amusement." He was certain that she would have difficulty in answering his question. "'Well,' she began slowly, then admitted, "'I don't know.' "'I'm very glad you don't know,' said her father with evident satisfaction. "'If you had tried to give a reason, I should have been greatly disappointed. No explanation of that suggestion could be based on anything but family pride, which is one form of vanity.' "'No,' Marion differed thoughtfully. "'There is one explanation, based on human caution and wisdom.' I am afraid that you are misunderstood by the very people whose confidence you should seek to cultivate, and that is the miners. Some of them don't like you very well. They think that you personally are a hard taskmaster, and that the attentions and relief which really come from you in times of need are bestowed on them by persons who feel that they have to help them because of your failure to do the right thing by them. Why don't you, Papa, go right among them and tell them that you are going to do everything you can for them, raise their wages, maybe, and make them love you personally? It isn't my nature, Marion, to do it that way, Mr. Stanlock replied. There's nothing in the world that would be so distasteful to me as assuming the role of a philanthropist or a hero. It spoils every man to some extent who tries it. "'Personal vanity is the greatest enemy that man has to guard against. "'I've guarded myself against it thus far successfully. "'I think I'm not going to let it get me in the future if I can help it.'" Marion felt like saying that her father's fear of vanity might someday get him into trouble with his men, but she refrained from so expressing herself. "'On the occasion before us, she recalled that conversation, "'for she realized that the strike was a result, in part, "'of the very misunderstanding that she had anticipated.'" Several clever leaders among the miners had spread the report about that Mr. Stanlock had become immensely wealthy by overworking and underpaying his men, while he caused to be circulated through various channels numerous undetailed reports of his generosity, philanthropy, and public spirit. When she invited members of Flamingo Campfire to be her guests and work with her among the poor and hunger-suffering families of the Strikers, she did not realize the seriousness of the situation with reference to the feeling of the miners toward her father. Now she felt that the condition of affairs was more than she could cope with, and from the day of her arrival home she was constantly in fear lest some dread catastrophe should befall the family because the biggest man in Hollyhill kept himself severely fortified against the adulation of his fellow townsmen and the character-weakening influence of personal vanity. Hey, thanks for coming back for this sixth installment. I sure hope you enjoyed it. And finally, now that we are officially halfway through this story, things are getting a little Christmassy. Christmas has only been mentioned in passing here and there throughout the first half of the story, so I was happy to see things get a little more festive this time around. Here's hoping that will only continue through the second half of the story. Well, you're just going to have to join me again next time to find out. And until then, let me remind you as always that Christmas Past is produced in wonderful Willow Glen, California by yours truly, Brian Earle. You can drop me a line anytime at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com, whether you want to send me a Christmas memory, or just say hi, tell me how you're doing, what your plans for Christmas are, or anything else for that matter. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and please do join the private Christmas Past Facebook group if you haven't yet. We're celebrating the Burr months and beyond. I'll be back in just a few days. Until then, stay safe and healthy, look out for one another, and may your days be merry and bright.